Amen. Amen. Thank you all again uh, for being here this morning. Take your copy of the Word of God and go to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, back in the Gospel according to Matthew. And of course, our memory verse is still, Jesus said unto them, with men this is impossible, but with God all things impossible. You know, while you're turning there, I want to tell you just a quick story, 30 seconds or so, 45. A few weeks ago, Shannon and I were having a discussion, and we talked about prayers that are dangerous. You remember that? As we, you know, we ask God for certain things. Like, for example, teach me patience, Lord. <laughs> Sometimes it's, we don't want to have that, right? But that also, and, and we shared about another one, and that was, um, Lord, please keep me humble. And uh, that is probably a more dangerous prayer, but still a prayer that we should pray. Well, I've been praying that, and I think the sermon is an answer to God uh, for me uh, to keep me humble. And this is God's answer to that. And you'll see that it's uh, many times are, are, are also an answer to one of Peter's questions um, that helps us see that we should be uh, humble. But look right there at Matthew chapter 19 and uh, verse 27. And if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word to honor the reading of God's word. Verse number 27 says, Then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, that's talking about the millennial reign of Christ, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And every one that hath forsaken houses, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold, and shall inherit everlasting life. But many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Continue to go on down to verse number 1 of Matthew 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a householder, which went out early in the morning to hire laborers in his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a penny a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right I will give you. And they went their way. Verse 5 says, And he went out about the sixth and the ninth and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle and saith unto them, Why stand ye here all the day idle? They say unto him, Because no man hath hired us. He saith unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right that shall ye receive. So when even was come, the Lord of the vineyard saith unto the steward, Call the laborers, and give them their hire, beginning from the last unto the first. And when they came that were hired about the eleventh hour, they received every man a penny. But when the first came, they supposed that they should have received more, and likewise received every man a penny. They likewise received every man a penny. Verse 11, And when they had received it, they murmured against the good man of the house, saying, These last have wrought but one hour, and thou hast made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden and heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I do thee no wrong. Didst thou not agree with me for a penny? Take that thine is, and go thy way. I will give unto those last, even as unto thee. Is it not lawful for me to do what, with, uh, what I will with mine own? Is thine I'm evil because I am good? So the last shall be first, and the first last, for many be called but few chosen. Let's go to the Lord and pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you again for allowing us to be here, Lord. We thank you for uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the cross, and we thank you for this passage this morning. 
uh, a lesson and service and, and many other things, Lord. And we ask that you just meet with us in a very special way. Help us to ignore whatever's on our agenda for tomorrow, even this afternoon, what was on the agenda prior to this meeting, Lord. Help us just put some um, some barriers against the, those time barriers, if you, if you will, Lord, and just focus on you for a moment. Uh, these few minutes, Lord, help us to see you high and lifted up. Help us to worship you in all that we are, Lord. And we thank you and we love you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Please, please be seated here. I want you to go back up to, um, let's see here, verse number, the very first verse, verse 27 of, of Matthew chapter 19, the, ver- the first verse in our sermon for this morning. Verse number 27, um, the Bible says that Peter asked, Peter spoke unto Jesus. He says, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? Peter here, remember, this is a lesson for humility for me, and however it applies to you, you can, you can just run with it, I guess. Um, but Peter pretty much asked, well, what's in it for me? What's in it for us, right? And if you remember from a couple weeks ago, and from earlier in this chapter, Jesus taught that entrance into the kingdom, salvation, everlasting life, and all those things that accompany that, that they are impossible without God. And we talked about that. That's even our, our verse here. Jesus said unto them, with men this is impossible. That's a direct reference to that rich man trying to get into heaven. It's impossible. Um, <clears throat> in fact, Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. You know, Luke's version of the word needle, he actually used the medical term for needle. So it's clearly talking about an actual needle and us trying to put a camel through the eye of it. So it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. In fact, in Mark chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, Jesus says, How hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. How hard is it for us who trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? And the answer is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. For the record, I want to point out that when it comes to quality of life and how we live and what's available to, to us today, I mean, the biggest thing maybe for, for most of us is whether or not to click the buy button on Amazon.de or .com. So I think many of us would be considered rich compared to the luxuries of the first century of just about everybody there. Um, now, I'm not saying that we're all rich today relative to today's standards, but I think that we are all, every one of us, prone to trust in riches rather than God. We all are prone to trust in something other than God. We're bent that way, unfortunately. Um, so this application here and many others in the text here in this parable fit very, very well to us. But back to Peter's question. What shall we have, Peter says? What shall we have for forsaking all? Now, remember, this is about the rich man. So uh, the rich man's there. God, God uh, or he came to Jesus. What must I do to be saved? Uh, and so or what must I have? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you got to, in so many words, we, we talked about that, um, about uh, he must keep the commandments and so forth. And then the person said he kept the commandments and he says, you need to give all that you have to the poor. And Peter hears that and he says, well, we've, we've, we've done that. We've, we've walked away from everything. What, what are we going to get? What are we going to get for forsaking all and following Jesus? Uh, again, remember what Peter what prompted Peter to ask that question? And again, it goes back to that rich man there in the earlier part of chapter 19. So Jesus told him, the rich man that is, in order to enter the kingdom, in order to enter life eternal, he had to keep all the commandments. And the rich man responded with, I, I've done this. 
I've kept them from my youth up. Um, but Jesus tests that statement with one command. Um, he pointed out to him that it really wasn't the case. He said, well, if, that, if that's true, if thou wilt be perfect, go and sell all that thou hast and give to the poor. But the rich man would not do it. As one commentator put it, he loved himself more than the poor, and he loved his possessions more than God. He had not, he had therefore not kept the commandments at all. Now, if you remember when we went through that a couple of weeks ago, God is not necessarily telling you to give away all your riches, unless he is. That's not a requirement. God is just pointing out where this man's trust was in, and it was in his riches. And he pointed out that he had not kept the commandments at all. And if you think about it, even if this man truly believed that he kept the commandments from his youth up, his own actions and his own words declare that eternal life cannot be acquired through obedience to those commands. In other words, if he believed that he actually kept the commandments and that keeping the commandments brought eternal life, he would not have even asked how to get eternal life because he would have already earned it. It is therefore evident that this man, who seemingly had it all, who was probably even a decent moral man, he had within him a deep void, an emptiness. He had no fulfillment, no true joy, no eternal life, which made him go out and ask the question. And all of this was outwardly evident because he could not bring himself to forsake all that he had to follow Jesus, which brings us back to Peter's question in verse 27. Lord, we have forsaken all. Lord, we have followed thee. What shall we have? What shall we have? And in our Lord's perfect response, I think you and I, as well as Peter and the apostles, can learn a thing or two about service and about humility and about what's in it for us. I think the short answer with putting all this in, in concept, notice that verse 20, uh, it's a very unfortunate chapter break there because I think it's all connected right there. Notice that the Lord's words don't end until verse number 19, or verse 16 rather. But Peter asked, Lord, what's in it for us? And if we look at that whole picture there, I think the answer, the short answer to Peter's question is found in that parable beginning in verse number one. And I think that answer for us to him is every man a penny. That's your answer. What's in it for me? A penny. A penny. That's what you get. And I think that's how we'll end with that same kind of concept. If we go to God with that mindset, hey, well, what's in it for me if I follow you? The parable here, well, you get a penny. You get a penny. And this phrase here will also serve as the title uh, for today's message, every man a penny. Now, our Lord's response, we're going we're gonna to dig in what that means, of course, but our Lord's response uh, really begins immediately. So G, uh, Peter asked the question there in verse 27, you see that? And Jesus responds beginning in verse 28. But notice again that it doesn't end in verse 28, not even 29, not verse 30, but it doesn't end all the way until verse 16 of chapter 20. How do we know that? Well, notice the similarities between 1930 and 2016. 1930, uh, or verse 30 says, But many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Verse 16, the other bookend of this of this teaching here, So, therefore, because of all the things I just said, so the last shall be first, and the first last. For many be called, but few chosen. So the second statement indicates that what is between those two statements is an explanation of all those two statements there. Does that make sense? So, uh, the last shall be first, and so forth. Um, and before we get into what I believe is Jesus' main point, I think it's important, very, very important, that we place a significant amount of emphasis 
on what is what I would consider a given here in the text. And that given is that we must not forget or must not miss that Jesus is speaking to the apostles. He's speaking to believers, people who have forsaken all, who have followed Jesus Christ. So to believers, keep that in mind there. So our first emphasis will begin with a look at what it means to forsake all and follow Jesus in a way that leads to us inheriting eternal life. Because that's the, the context. I mean, look at that. Um, we've forsaken all, and Jesus responds a specific, a specific response to them in verse 28, which we won't get too much into, but verse 29, and everyone, which we fall into, and everyone that hath forsaken those things shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. So in this passage here, Jesus is teaching that if we forsake all and follow, there's some, inher- there's some inheritance there. So I want to point out, that there is some forsaking and following that leads to eternal life, but not all forsaking and following leads to eternal life. In other words, I think it's clear that there is no entering the kingdom of heaven, there is no inheriting eternal life without forsaking all for Jesus. I realize, if you've been in church for a while, at least at this church for a while, you realize that that might sound a little a little close to us earning our salvation. Well, if I do that, I have eternal life. Well, I assure you that's not. Because Romans 9.16, um, I've used this many times, it says, It's not of him that willeth, or desires, or determines, it's not of him that determines, nor of him that runs, but of God that shows mercy. So without a doubt, salvation is by grace through faith. Uh, but this does not mean that we are completely passive in the operation. We all know that to be true. Only that our efforts have nothing to do with salvation. They add nothing to our salvation. For example... I have a fancy, crisp $1 bill. Riches, right? Riches. I want to give this to Brother Harry. You sit there. I'll come to you in a moment. So I have in my hand a cool, crisp $1 bill. And I'm a very nice guy. <laughs> Not really. But I want to give this to Brother Harry. This is, this is for you, Brother Harry. That's a $1 bill. Riches, full of all kinds of things, right? You can buy all kinds of things, but not here in Germany. Maybe a lollipop, maybe. <laughs> but not here in Germany. So I am giving this gracious amount to Brother Harry. Harry did nothing to get it, right? What did Harry do? Absolutely, I, mean, I walked across here, I gave it, and I put it in his hand. He did nothing um, to earn those riches that I bestowed upon him. Uh, it's clearly a gift from me to him. But you know, you think about it, he had to come to church today. He would not have that $1 bill if he did not come to church today. He had to walk up the stairs. And to get all those things to get that one dollar bill. But it would be silly for us to conclude that coming to church and walking up those stairs would be connected to him, him earning that one dollar bill. It is still a gift. That's not for you, Brian. That's for Harry. <laughs> I'm, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so he didn't earn it. It was a gift from me to him. Um, and, but with that said, he would not have received the gift if he were not here. Because it is not of him that determines or wills, nor of him that runneth, or in this case walks up the stairs, but of God, in this case not God, but me, that showed mercy and gave him a dollar bill. But he had to determine to get here, and he had to walk up those stairs, even though they're not connected. And when it comes to salvation, this willing and running is a result of faith. We are not saved by determination. We are not saved by running or walking up the stairs or by doing anything, but by grace through faith are we saved. 
But forsaking, if you put all this together, forsaking something is connected to our salvation. Actually, forsaking is a byproduct of faith. It's all inside of that package. You cannot have faith in God that breeds, that, that yields salvation without forsaking self and so forth. It's connected. Faith and forsaking are together. And in the context of this passage here, there must be some level of forsaking on our part in order to receive the grace and mercy provided by God through Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. Put differently, and similar to how Jesus himself puts it here in Mark chapter 10, actually take your Bible and go to Mark, keep your place there in, in, uh, in Matthew. Go to Mark chapter 10. Matthew, Mark. <laughs> Help you out there a little bit. Mark, Mark chapter 10, look at verse number 24. Four, I think it is. Ten, twenty-four, and the disciples were astonished. But Jesus answered again and said unto them, Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were astonished out of measure, um, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? With men it is impossible, but with God, um, uh, but not with God, for with God, all things are possible. Lord, uh, or, or Peter said, Lord began to say unto him, Lo, we have left all and followed thee. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you that there there is no man that hath left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake and the gospel, but he shall receive a hundredfold and so forth. We'll come back to that. So put differently, and that mindset of salvation, keep that, keep, keep that thought here with us this morning. Um, we cannot trust in riches for eternal life and at the same time have faith to enter into the kingdom of God. Right? Makes sense? We cannot trust in ourselves to get to heaven and at the same time have faith in Jesus Christ to get us into heaven. It's one or the other. There's no admixture of it at all. It must be one or the other. It must be forsaking whatever we think that gets us into heaven and turning to Jesus Christ. We must forsake riches to have eternal life. We cannot trust in houses. We cannot trust in brethren. We cannot trust in sisters or fathers or mothers or wives or or husbands or children or lands or any of those things. For eternal life, we must forsake those things in order to inherit everlasting life. Put differently again, our faith cannot be in self, it cannot be in substance, and it cannot be in our loved ones. It must be in Jesus. We don't get to heaven because our parents are Christians or our brothers or anybody like that or because we're even coming to church. I mean, um, I can walk into a garage. That doesn't make me a car. So we can come to church. It doesn't make you a Christian unless you've received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Our faith cannot be in self-substance or loved ones. It must be in Jesus Christ. We must forsake the faith that we put in all things and put our faith in Jesus for eternal life. Friends, it is a major ingredient to our personal salvation that if that is missing, there is no eternal life. How else could we describe what it means to be crucified with Christ other than forsaking self? In fact, theologically speaking, and according to Romans 8.17, Jesus, as the first, few, uh, as the first fruit, it is him as, as the God-man who actually inherits all things. Right, He inherits this kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. He inherits the new heaven and the new earth, the millennium. It's all him. It, he is the one that inherits. So, But when we forsake all and put our faith in him, 
He is so loving and kind and generous that he makes us a joint heir with him, and we get to inherit what he has, what he inherited. It's, it's the best deal going. There is no greater deal. And for the record, I understand that when it comes to this forsaking, maybe this thought came to your mind, well, maybe I didn't forsake some things. Maybe, maybe there's some things in my life that I haven't let go. But I understand that discipleship is indeed a maturing process in Christ. And what we don't forsake now, we will hopefully forsake tomorrow. But salvation requires some level of forsaking. There is no salvation without some level of forsaking. There must be some level of self-abandonment connected to our born-again price, our process. And at a minimum, I think that, that awareness is the recognition of our spiritual death and that I can't trust myself to remedy my, myself. Right? I'm, I have eternal death. I can't fix it. So I have to forsake my own abilities and trust Christ that he can fix that. And that's what salvation is. By faith, we must cry out to God for redemption, not to ourselves, not to our homes or our brethren. I mean, if we can cry out to them, this verse wouldn't be here. But we are to cry out to God uh, because it's only his grace that can save us. Only his grace, not through works, but only through faith, lest any man should boast. And continuing on, in this part of Scripture, we see that our forsaking really doesn't stop with salvation. It, it should continue in our service to God. We should have a life of forsaking. We talked before about Jesus who lived truly the crucified life from the cradle all the way to the cross. He lived dead to self and alive to, uh, alive to God the Father. He always accomplished the will of the Father. That is a great example for us. We are to also live that crucified life, not connected to our salvation, but because we are saved, we are to forsake this world. So again, it doesn't stop with salvation, but it should continue in our service to God. For one, Jesus taught there in verse 29 that whatever we forsake for his name's sake, I like this now, for his name's sake shall receive a hundredfold, a hundredfold. Our forsaking is not only an inheritance, that forsaking that's connected to the faith that brings uh, us eternal life, but our forsaking after that also brings in an investment, an investment that's truly out of this world and in this world. Now, I don't know about you, when I see that hundredfold there, I'm not sure that I have ever seen an advertisement for a 100-fold return on an investment. Anybody? That's 10,000%. I'd be excited to see 10%. 10% I would be, I'd be happy about. So I wonder how many people, if we were to put this out on our, on our church side out here, invest in us. 100-fold return. Just, just drop off your whatever you got, you know. Um, I wonder how many people would, would come. But if you think about it, if the response to this passage is an indicator to how many people will respond to that, not many. Not many. But we know that there would be many because we are more moved by the return on our earthly investments than we are by God's promises. Don't be more motivated by uh, by earthly investments than we are. None of those investments are a hundredfold. God's investments are a hundredfold. And by the way, that hundredfold is just a, a, a different kind of way of saying that really an unlimited. God's not putting a limit onto it. It's, it's, a, it's an unfathomable return on our investment when we live for God. Um, 
Notice Jesus' full words on there. You're there in Mark. Look at verse 29 again. He says, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife. Uh, we can add in husband there because he starts with man, so no woman for man, right? Or children's or lands for my sake and the gospels. But he shall receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brethren and sisters, mothers and children, and lands with persecution, and in the world to come eternal life. And then he ends this teaching that, that let us know he's talking about the same passage here, the same part in Jesus' life here. He ends it with the same closing there in verse 31, but many that are first shall be last and the last first. Notice, however, a couple things different there in Mark's rendition. Mark actually records three things that are not in Matthew's record. Three significant things, I believe, that are not there. He records the gospel's sake. There is the phrase, in this time, and there is the phrase with persecutions. So those three things there, for the gospel's sake, in this time, that means in this life, and with persecutions. He didn't have to add that last one in there, but it's there. Um, but with these additions, along with really Mark skipping over the entire parable, in fact, that parable that we read there about the householder is only unique to the book of Matthew. It's not in any of the other gospel records. So they all skip over it. But the fact that Matthew added those things in there I believe it's likely that these three things sum up what Jesus taught in that parable. Right? Mark is the shortest gospel. It's always fast, immediate. Jesus did this, Jesus did that, Jesus did this. It's on and on and on. So Mark is quick and getting to those things. It's the shortest one, and it's always moving fast. Um, so his skipping over that and adding those three things uh, really kind of helps us see a little bit more about what that parable kind of points to, which, again, takes us back to our beginning question. What's in it for me? Peter says, we have forsaken all. What are we going to get? What are we going to get? In Mark's record, Jesus taught that the return on our investment is in this life and in the next. He taught that our service is connected to the gospel. I would say specifically for the sake of the gospel. In other words, we are to forsake those things that get in the way of us sharing the gospel. We are to forsake those things. And Jesus also taught there in Mark chapter 10 that in this life, our investments will come with some setbacks from time to time. Persecutions even. But how does that answer Peter's question? Well, let's kind of put all that together. And this is where it kind of hits me in my humility bone, I guess, if you have one of those. Let's put all that together. With regards to the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, because they... Well, Matthew's the only one that says it, but Mark and Luke kind of attribute some, some comments here. Uh, but with regard to them, I strongly believe that the Holy Spirit guided each of them to reach a different audience, right? There's a different audience for Matthew, a different audience for Mark, a different audience for Luke, and, and most, definitely, most definitely a different audience for John. That's when they first wrote those things. Um, but now I believe they're, they're, in addition to that, that's the, that's the first, first, second century um, application there. And that's still there, mind you. It doesn't go away. But an application for us today is that we can see, we can read from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we can read through different perspectives because we're different types of people. And some would speak more to us. The gospel according to John actually speaks more to me than, than the other three. Um, but these are, these are all God's words. And I'm just, I just like the way John lays some things out. But they all have their different perspectives and they all have great benefits and they all stand alone on what they're written there because they all have their own agendas. Matthew has a point to get across. Mark, Luke and John. However, when we study them all together, um, kind of the, the harmony of the Gospels, if you will, we really get a closer 
understanding to the actual event, not necessarily the doctrine that's being taught, but the actual event when Jesus taught the disciples. Again, context is king in every one of those gospel records. But think about this. Jesus just taught that the rich man uh, should forsake his wealth. The rich man walked away. Peter and the apostles, uh, the, the other disciples, they were amazed then at the difficulty it takes for one to be saved. Remember? Impossible, possible. And then Jesus taught on the importance of forsaking. Then it seems the apostles were seemingly filled with pride and said, wait a minute now, wait a minute. We're not that rich man. We have forsaken all. I've left my father's boat. I left mom. I left that. We've left all of those things. We have, surely we are going to get a lot of good things, right, Lord? Jesus then confirms that they will indeed inherit many blessings. Even a hundredfold in this life, if they serve him unconditionally, forsaking all thanks and so forth and so forth. But then he gets to this parable where the householder hires laborers early in the morning and then again at nine and then again at noon and then again at three and then again at the 11th hour, which is right before sundown. At the end of the day, he brings all the laborers, the last before the first, and he pays them all the same. Every man a penny, which again, if you remember, that's a denarius, that's a full day's wages for a foot soldier. Now, there have been many interpretations and applications about this parable, because as you notice, Jesus does not interpret this one. He, he interprets other ones. He gives you uh, he gives you a parable, and then he, he tells you what it means, but he doesn't do that for this one. So there have been many interpretations and many applications for this parable during the church age, and the controversy or the differences of opinion are second only to the parable of the unjust steward. Um, so many liken, just to go through this, many liken the first laborers uh, to the Jews. Right? Y'all probably heard that before, to the Jews who endured the burden of the Mosaic law, and they liken Christians um, to those who have been serving along the way after that, you know, the 9 to 3, the noon, and so forth, all of which receive a penny. Some have said that the laborers represent actually all believers who are saved at different times of their life, and regardless of how long they are saved, they all receive a penny. They all receive eternal life. But both of these explanations assume that Jesus is teaching about salvation or that he's teaching about eternal life. And that just isn't clear. To me, it isn't. But it's also clear that he isn't teaching about rewards. And you're like, well, wait a minute now. This is very clearly talking about some rewards. So, but how do, so how do we know he's not teaching about rewards? Because Jesus taught about rewards already, if you remember, in a different context at the beginning of his Sermon on the Mount. Um, there in Matthew chapter 5. He said this in verse 11 and 12 of Matthew 5. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. Watch this next phrase. For great is your reward in heaven. Now, I'm not trying to be disrespectful at all. The Lord knows my heart. But I'm missing something if this is only a penny. How great can a penny be? And how can my actions increase the greatness of a penny? Furthermore, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 13 and 15, Every man's work shall be made manifest, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved. 
So if the reward in this passage is also a penny, it is clear that some can actually lose their penny, but still enter into eternal life, which doesn't go mesh well with this parable. The fact of the matter is that there are, a numer- there are numerous passages that teach about fruit, about rewards, about blessings, plural, all directly proportionate to our walk of faith as born-again believers. Yes, every gift of God, or every good gift, rather, is from God, from the Father of life. James tells us that. And every single reward that we have in this life is because of God's grace. It's according to the grace of God. But they are indeed connected to our service to him as Christians. We don't earn salvation, but once we are saved, they are many times, as Scripture says here, connected to our salvation or to our service to him. How else do we explain or understand verses like James 1.12, which says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life. There are actually five crowns that the Bible teaches that Christians earn through their obedience after salvation. So they cannot be about rewards here. And so back to our text there in Matthew, it's clear to me that he's not teaching on rewards or eternal life. Rather, in answer to Peter's question, he is teaching about the heart. He's teaching about the motives that are in our hearts. In other words, our service to the master should not be focused on rewards. We are not to serve Jesus for or because of eternal life. We are not to serve him for or because of investments or blessings or any of those things. We serve him simply because of who he is, of who Jesus is. In so many words, Jesus' answers to what do we get for serving you is that by asking the question, we are missing the whole point of service altogether. If we go to Jesus and say, well, what do I get? We're missing the whole point of what it means to serve Jesus Christ. I mean, think about that. To go into any endeavor with the mindset of what's in it for me, that might be the way the world works and of a necessity many times. But it's the opposite of forsaking self for that endeavor, right? You'll see that. If I, if I go get a job and I, I need something from that, right? I need to get paid. I got I to get the bills. I got to, you know, I got to earn. A, a man, the Bible even teaches that a man is um, deserves his wages and all those things like that. Um, but it's not the same as forsaking self. Forsaking self would to do that for free. And we serve God out of freedom. We don't serve God with the expectation of return. It's connected to the definition of agape love. To go into any endeavor with the mindset of what's in it for me is the opposite of forsaking self for that endeavor. And one of the telltale signs of a heart that is in something for self at least in this parable, is the presence of murmuring, jealousy, and victimhood. Look at verses 10 and 12 back in Matthew chapter 20, 10 through 12. So he's brought them all in. He's starting paying them a penny. Verse 10 says, but when the first came, they supposed that they should have received more. They're probably thinking, can you imagine the 11th hour guy comes to get a penny? We're like, wait a minute. We get 12 pennies. Wow, that's awesome. 12 days wages for one day work. But... They supposed that. They received more, but they also got a penny. Verse 11 says, And when they had received it, they murmured against the good men of the house, saying, These last have wrought but one hour, and thou hast made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden and the hurt and, and the heat of the day. So they murmured against the master, even though he paid them exactly what they contracted for. 
they had a contract. They were jealous over the other workers because they got what they got. The other workers got what we got. And they also played the victim card, if you will. We don't see that today, do we? But they cried, you made them equal to me. They've they've cried the equality card here. We can almost sense, how dare you make them equal to us? We worked all day long, and you hired them for one hour. How dare you, master? So for this first group, whoever really we want to, you want to, you want them to represent, they were only in it for the penny. There was no faith in the master that he would pay what was right. In fact, of all the groups in this parable, the early morning group, the nine o'clock group, the noon group, the three o'clock group, and the eleventh hour group, only the first group had a contract for a penny. Only the first one. All of the other groups simply agreed with whatever is right. Whatever the master, whatever you want to pay us, master, we'll take it. We'll take it. But notice from those other groups, all of them but the first one, that there is not even one hint of their dissatisfaction with the good man of the house. I mean, let's talk about this timing here for a moment. The, so the first century Jews, um, their, their reckoning of hours of daylight isn't really according to our clocks here today. Um, it kind of revolved around the sacrifices there in, in the temple. Therefore, 12 hours would not always be 12 hours exactly to our, to our clock. Um, because one, the length of days, they're counting daytime hours. So days are not always the same, of course. Uh, so sun up, however, was always the first hour and sun up was always the twelfth hour. And that's just a, an oversimplification of this. But for ease of cal- calculation, we'll assume that the first group of laborers worked a full 12 hours and the last only worked one hour. So if you were that first 12 hour group, you could probably understand some aggravation there, right? I can, I can understand that. But think about those who were hired at 9 a.m. Nine hours. They worked nine hours. They worked the majority of the day. They even worked the hottest part of the day. But they only worked simply trusting that the master would pay righteously. And unlike the first group, this second group of laborers was not in it for the penny. Yes, they needed the penny. They needed to make ends meet, but they trusted the good men of the house. And we can probably park there for a long time for a moment. We are all Christians. We're all service servants of Jesus Christ. And we are not to look at each other and compare each other. We're just supposed to trust him for the blessings. If he blesses, you know, Bob more than Joe, then praise God. Be like the second group. Praise God that they gave that one-hour group the same as me who worked nine hours. Praise God. Don't be like the first group and be bitter. Bitter is a door that opens opens right up for the destruction, so let it go. Um, very practically this morning, we are to be like any group in this parable except the first one. And before we go much further with our application here, we're kind of coming down to a close here. Um, as this parable unfolded, I want to ask you a question. So the disciples are there. You know, We looked at Matthew's rendition of the parable. We looked at Mark's kind of setting of the stage there and some of the things that led to the parable. But if you're there, you're one of the apostles, or maybe you're thinking like an apostle. <clears throat> Who do you think the apostles, which group do you think the apostles identified with? One. Probably one. We don't know for sure, but it's just speculation here. Probably number one. If I'm the apostle there, at least until they got to the end of the, the, the parable, right? Well, and they got to the end, oh, whoa, 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 I don't want to be the first guy anymore. But as they're hearing it, probably, we're definitely, we are definitely group number one. 
we're the ones that got a contract with God. And, and maybe even tie in that, that Jewish nature there. We're part of Israel and so forth like that. We're part of that first group. Now, again, we don't know for sure, but I would guess the first group. And that is true of probably again until he heard the complete parable. But let me ask this question. Which group do you think Jesus placed the apostles in? We don't know. But I would also the first group. Also the first group. I mean, think about this. Had <laughs> we're, not, we're not picking on the apostles here, but had the disciples murmured at all about who was the greatest among them? <laughs> was there any jealousy among them about who would receive the most rewards? Did any of them ever play the victim card and ask, who do I, why do I have to die? What about him? Remember John 21? Peter? What about John? What about John? All of them are group number one. Truth be told, the disciples did start out with the concept of what's in it for me. They did. So do we. But Jesus changed their lives. He changed their lives and taught them that it's not about rewards. It's about the Redeemer. It's about God. It's about serving God. It's all about Jesus Christ. So let me ask this simple question this morning. Are you in it for the penny? Are you in it for eternal life? Are you in it for the rewards? Are you in it for the blessings in this life or the next? Are you in it just because of him? Just because of Jesus? Are you in it for Jesus? Do you serve him because of the blessings? Or do you serve him just because of who he is? Is your Christian life all about what's in it for me? Or are you serving him? You know, sometimes I think it's a fine line, at least in my own prayer life. It's a, it's a fine line between serving God and asking God to serve us. You'll see that? In other words, you get to a prayer like, Lord, do this. And we ask the Lord to do this. And we almost want him to be at our beck and call. But we're supposed to be at his beck and call. We're supposed to, what can I do for you, God? Not, Lord, please help me get through this. Lord, please help me by this building. We should have some prayers. We are needy people. I understand that. Lord, please help my, my sister-in-law get saved. Help my, my niece get saved. We, we should have those things. We are needy people. But what can I do for him? How can I serve him? How can I be at your, your beck and call? You know, if we approach serving God with the mindset of what's in it for us, we're not going to get very far. But if you and I approach serving God with the mindset of every man just gets a penny, it kind of just takes it all away, doesn't it? It changes our motive. Our service to God will no doubt be connected. If we take away that it's just a penny, or we take away it's not about the rewards and it's not about those things at all, now our service is connected to a person and not a payday. We want to be connected to a person, not a payday. We follow the Word of God, not because it's the Word of God, and don't, don't misunderstand me here, but because Jesus wrote it. Because God wrote it. I'm following a person, not the words. A person who wrote these words. Let's be connected to a person, not a payday. The question is truly not what's in it for me, but what's in it for him. What's in it for Jesus? You know, the first might be last, and the last might be first, but we have no idea where we're at on that list. We just don't know. Follow him. Serve him.